We are going to, in a moment here, jump back into the discussion that we started last time, an introduction to business processes. But you might recall me mentioning that there were a couple of slides I expected to appear in our course overview and success factors uh, slide deck that were not there. And uh, I thought about just perhaps going ahead and, and bypassing them. But after reflecting on what we did talk about last time, uh, I really wanted to, to go back and, and capture these things quickly if we could in, in our discussion. And, and you'll recall last time, at least I, I trust you'll recall, we talked about the challenge of configuration versus customization. And our rule of thumb should be in our organization that if we can do something by way of configuration, we want to do that. That clearly is the, the best pathway. And I, I think I shared with you the observation that a lot of times companies engage in customization only to later find out that they could have achieved their goal by way of configuration, but they didn't take the time to do the necessary background research to learn what options were truly available to them. And it is a, a long and, and complicated process. I can recall a, a discussion I had with a, a configuration person that works at the University of Tennessee. And uh, in this discussion, she had mentioned to me a particular project that she was working on. And she said that basically, she had a job that ultimately required her to visit visit three different transactions and enter three values, kind of like what you guys have been doing for homework, but it took her two weeks of research to figure out what values needed to be put where and what those values to, should be in order to achieve what it was they were trying to do. And so um, the nice thing about your lab work is, is it's laid out for you do this, then do this, then do this. And, and as I've mentioned, as we go along in the semester, we'll talk more about those things. But realize that for everything that you do that takes like two minutes in a real world organization, there's a lot of decision making and discussion and evaluation of alternatives that go into this. And so the process becomes much, much uh, elongated. As a part of this discussion on configuration versus customization, Hopefully you recall where we reference the fact that in an organization, we sometimes face the situation where there are things that we do now that are different than the way the enterprise information system would like to have us do those things. And we face the question of do we keep doing things the way we want to do them and potentially resort to customization or do we just change the way we do things in order to um, get the results in, in an easier fashion? And, and there's been a lot in the literature written about this from a, a strategic perspective. Thomas Davenport is someone who has written extensively about various issues related to enterprise information strategy. And, and you don't have this particular slide in your slide deck, but uh, it's not like a quote you need to memorize. But I thought the idea behind this was something that was definitely worth our discussing. Um, Thomas Davenport, in, in one of his articles, says, an enterprise system, by its very nature, imposes its own logic on a company's strategy, organization, and culture. And we'll come back to that discussion um, 
at a later point and, and talk about that in more detail. It pushes a company towards full integration, even when a certain degree of business unit segregation may be in its best interest. And it pushes a company towards generic processes, even when customized processes may be a source of a competitive advantage. If a company rushes to install an enterprise system without first having a clear understanding of the business implications, the dream of integration can quickly turn into a nightmare. The logic of the system may conflict with the logic of the business, and either the implementation will fail, wasting vast sums of money and causing a great deal of disruption, or the system will weaken important sources of competitive advantage, hobbling the company. So this goes back to the very important discussion we had last time that should be at the forefront in your mind if you're doing configuration work in an organization. This tension between do we go with the way that the software is pushing us to go and encouraging us to go and making easy for us to go, or if we do that, are we in fact going to give up some elements of, of competitive advantage? And I have one more slide that, that goes with this that I, I, I'd encourage you to you know, find a place in your notes to, to write this down. But the issue here is looking at things in the domain of our own practices. And by that, I just mean the things the way we do them our practices, the way we conduct business at any given point in time, versus what we call best practices. Best practices are those things that are considered the normal way in an industry to do things. It is considered in general to be the best way to do something, which in some cases our own practices may be the same as best practices or, or they may diverge. So as we think about this as a company, one of the key elements here is to think in terms of our, our competencies, first of all. And, and the way I'm using that term is there are certain things that we as a company have to do to stay in business. We have to pay our bills. We have to pay our employees. We have to tell people when to show up for work and where they're supposed to go. There are all these very basic things that as an organization, we have to do just to stay in business. Now, as we were talking about last time, most of those things, I use the 80-20 rule, and I said that 80% of our processes fall into those things where what we are doing is non-differentiated, meaning it's not different than what anybody else does. Everybody, for the most part, does payroll the same way. And so it's not differentiated. In addition, it's non-competing, meaning it doesn't give us an advantage in the marketplace over other companies. It's not something that offers us a competitive advantage because our customers probably don't even know that we do this. And beyond that, even if they did know, they don't care. You know, your customers aren't going to care that you use a particular piece of software to run payroll in your company. They don't care. 
that's you know not something that they ever see nor would they be inclined to worry about so most of the things that a company does their basic competencies first of all they're likely not different and if they are different they're likely not different in an important way and beyond that they're they're not a competitive factor they don't mean anything in terms of our relationship with the customer examples of this payroll i've used that before warehousing now especially if we're talking about a traditional warehouse where you walk in and there are racks and there are pallets of material and there are forklifts driving back and forth and there are people pulling things out of slots and putting them in boxes for the most part a warehouse is a warehouse is a warehouse and so we probably aren't going to find any competitive advantage in doing things radically different than our competitors. That being said, there are exceptions to that. There are companies out there that have heavily invested in computerized warehouses that make extensive uses of automation and robots and things like that. So this is kind of an example that if you're running a traditional warehouse, pretty much everybody does it the same way. So that would be non-differentiated, non-competing. But if you're running a highly computerized, robot-oriented warehouse, that could be a source of lowering your costs, lowering your manpower demands, fulfilling customer orders quicker then that could be a competitive advantage. So this is where we have to make this assessment in the domain of, of our own company. But as we look at our business processes, we have our, our competencies, those basic things that we have to do that fundamentally aren't important. And then we have our differentiations. And our differentiations are those things that we do that are unique to our company and they provide a competitive advantage. Now realize when I say unique here, that literally might mean we're the only company that does it this way, or it could mean we're a member of the minority of companies, and other companies are doing this, but the normal thing is to do something different, but us and a handful of other companies are doing things a little bit better. So those things that are unique to a company that give us competitive advantage, we're going to call them differentiations. So here's kind of the, the key, one of the key points here. Standardizing competencies does not erode corporate advantage. If we've always used a particular program to do payroll, and because of a different vendor we now have elected to work with, we need to move to a different payroll software. That's probably not something that we need to lose a lot of sleep over because it's non-differentiated, it's non-competing, and so standardizing those things does not erode corporate advantage. And so for those things, what we want to do is we want to adopt best practices. In other words, if we're going to do payroll, we want to do payroll using the best practices of all the companies in our industry. And so that gives us a foundation in order to make sure that we're not doing anything any worse than anyone else that we're competing with. And we're all kind of on the same par in, in those particular domains. Whoops. And so the idea here is, as we think about configuration versus customization, and we're facing this idea of do we customize something or not? If it is something that falls into that domain of differentiation, 
it's unique to our company it is something that's competitive it is something that's meaningful in the eyes of, a, of our customers we do not want to give that up for the very reasons that were alluded to in, in this quote right here we risk giving up the heart and soul of our organization in doing that and putting ourselves as a, at a competitive a disadvantage. Questions about this or comments? Okay, that's a very good lead-in, I think, to what actually is uh, where we left off when we were together last time in the slide deck on introduction to business processes. And, and this particular discussion corresponds with uh, chapter one in your textbook. And to a certain degree, it covers on a very high level a lot of things that, that we will talk about in more detail as the semester goes on. So my goal is for us to move through this very quickly and uh, hopefully be done with this discussion today so that when we get together on Thursday, we can jump into our first big discussion of, of some substance. And by the way, when you download the slide decks for this class, um, please do not freak out if you go to print them out at, at the size of them. There's a lot of figures and such in the slide deck. I think our slide deck for next time, um, well, I have a few more slides than you do because of some questions, but I think it has like 61 slides in it. And that'll take us a, a while to go through. But I want to give you lots of figures and illustrations and things of that sort. And so hopefully you'll have some good resources when it comes time to, to prepare for exams and such. So last time we were together, we talked about a business process. And we talked about this issue of having a process-oriented view. Uh, versus a functional view and as a part of that discussion we we talked about the silo effect that was uh, something that um, we had a quiz question about today what is the silo effect is it good or bad what is meant by the term enterprise system and and what was our answer to that what's meant by the term enterprise system you can give us a good definition of that impress your classmates with your That sounds great. The idea here is a system that is going to be focused on business processes and in particular the end-to-end -end execution of all of the different steps in various business processes. And, and we left off last time with this uh, discussion point um, that related to homework answers that some people had provided that uh, suggested one way to resolve the silo effect was to go out and buy an enterprise information system. And I think we talked about the fact that that may be helpful, but in fact it actually might make things worse because in and of itself, purchasing a piece of software is not really going to change the way people think about things. This diagram is, is where we will start today. This diagram shows up in several different places in your textbook, including the, excuse me, the cover of, of your textbook. And um, I 
can recall when this diagram was was being created and and talking with the authors of your textbook where they had decided they wanted a picture which showed the the major processes that were going to be discussed in the textbook and over the course of the semester and they wanted lines that were illustrated to show the relationships between the different processes and the first draft of this picture basically had lines going from every square to every other square and it kind of looked like a, I don't know like a bowl of spaghetti or something you really couldn't follow it and so they decided to clean up the diagram by putting a circle around these core three and the the two here in the bottom left and connecting things up to the circle to to uh, make the connections a little bit easier to see as we kind of take this diagram apart and, and talk about it at the heart here of this diagram we, we have these three processes here in the middle the procurement process the production process and the fulfillment process which we will start talking about here in a couple of weeks in detail in our time together really are the core processes for most organizations companies buy things for the most part many companies make things although not every company engages in production and companies sell things so that make buy and sell those processes tend to incorporate a, a lot of the functionality that we see in enterprise information systems down here at the bottom we have the green squares for financial accounting and management accounting and I think we determined last time that most of you had taken one or more accounting courses in the past and so that will will certainly serve you well financial accounting and and managerial accounting become very important to us as a way of keeping records of everything that goes on in our organization and in particular the the monetary implications of various things that go on in our organizations one of the things that is critical in an organization is having a true understanding of of their cost picture and I don't know how many of you experience this in ERP sim there are certain key elements in ERP sim that I think are critical things for teams to realize as a way of being competitive and these are the kinds of things that I I usually don't talk about explicitly in class but I, I hope that teams will come to a conclusion about on their own and one of those is the real power that comes from over time in your ERP sim company if you invest in things like increasing your capacity because when you increase your capacity what you do is you lessen the impact on a per unit basis of, of overhead if you're making 20,000 boxes of muesli a day and you have overhead of $20,000 well basically for every box you make you've got a dollar of overhead that's going to be attached to that box that you're going to have to cover well, if you increase your production capacity so that you're making 40,000 boxes, if your overhead doesn't change, you've just cut your cost rather significantly. And what tends to happen over time is here's one company that knows that 
a box of muesli costs them a dollar seventeen and another company who maybe hasn't really even looked very much at their costs but when they do they discover it costs them a dollar eighty three to make a box of muesli and and this team right here decides to sell it for a dollar sixty five well they have a significant advantage because not only will consumers likely see that as a really really good price but they're going to make money every time they sell a box at that price if this team tries to compete with them every box they sell they're losing money well this is a microcosm of what happens in the real world where companies really want to have an understanding of their true costs of activities that they engage in and the true cost of a particular material. Where companies get in trouble is where they think it costs them a dollar seventeen to make a box, only later to find out it really costs them a dollar eighty-three. And therefore their marketing plan of selling it for a dollar sixty-five manifests itself in a significant loss at the end of the year. Similarly, if we think our costs are $1.83 when they're really $1.17, we potentially have lost a lot of sales that would have been profitable sales for us, but, but we weren't operating on accurate information. So the role of financial accounting and management accounting cannot be overstated for an organization to truly understand the real costs of what it is that they are doing in their organization. I, I talked to a graduate of our department in the last year, and I'm going to be somewhat vague about this. Um, he actually at one point worked in IT and decided that as a career move, um, he was very interested in business strategy and an opportunity opened up for him to transfer in his organization to the strategic procurement group in his particular company. And basically his job was to use various computer software tools, he did a lot of statistical work and other things of that sort, to try and understand the financial picture of what was going on in the marketplace and certain key trends and things like that. And it just so happened that the company that he worked for bought in large volume a, a lot of different products. But one of the products that they bought in large volume, um, he was tasked with trying to truly understand. And he was able to leverage information the company had and market information and other things of that sort and developed a prediction model and went into his boss and said, you know, at this particular time when the price of the product gets to this point, which I believe it is, we should buy $10 million of it which was a fairly risky recommendation, um, but he made his case and talked about it to the key people in the organization and they did that. They made that purchase and he was right. And that one decision resulted in over $2 million being saved by the company, which made him a giant hero and got him a pretty good pay raise in the process. Not a $2 million pay raise, unfortunately, for him, but um, certainly in that situation, because he was able to shift what these numbers were going to look like for that organization in a really significant way that competing organizations were, were not going to be able to do. 
And so this is where for an organization, we're going to see all throughout this semester that tracing things back to uh, financial and managerial accounting is a key piece of functionality within the system. Well, what this diagram really is intended to illustrate is something that right now we might be able to leverage our experience through ERP SIM to, to explain. Let's, for example, look at this issue between the production process and the procurement process, which is illustrated by, by this line right here. Okay? So the question is, how does the production process interact with the procurement process? Well, the point of this, I think, is pretty straightforward. In the production process, in order to make things, we need raw materials. And so as a part of that, we need to assess what raw materials we already have, which right away, that now is going to activate this line right here because our production process is going to communicate with our warehouse management piece of functionality to get things like inventory levels. And if we find out we are deficient, well, what is the production process going to communicate to the procurement process? What's that? Buy more. And how did they communicate that? What document? I'm hearing mumblings of things like blah, 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 blah. So someone like, be bold. Close, but not quite. What document do we use to indicate that something needs to be purchased? Purchase requisition. Thank you, a purchase requisition. All right, so if we were labeling this, which you could do on your, your diagram there, um, the production process sends to the procurement process a purchase requisition. So that is specifically how those processes interact. The production process may create a purchase requisition which then gets sent back, gets sent to the procurement process. Now, what you probably don't know, because this is not something you saw in the context of of ERP SIM, when the procurement process is totally finished and materials come into our organization, what's actually going to happen is the warehouse is going to send to the production process a goods receipt document. And that goods receipt document essentially indicates that we have now gotten in what it is that you requested to be ordered. Every line on this diagram represents a document exchange. Or, in fact, there could be multiple document exchanges illustrated by one line here. This goes back to the observation that I made last time. You know you understand how the system works when you could take this diagram and put something on every one of these lines to illustrate how this is, in fact, going to work. Let me give you another example. The fulfillment process. In ERP SIM, you ran a make-to-stock company, which meant you made inventory, you put it in the warehouse, you sold it out of the warehouse. 
but you may recall there are in fact other business models. The make-to-order model involves us selling something and then making it in response to having made that sale. And uh, I like to illustrate that with there are a lot of products that are custom made, like a bakery that makes wedding cakes. A uh, bride and groom go in, they pick out a wedding cake, and the bakery makes that to match their particular order. Well, in this situation, the communication between the fulfillment process and the other processes here could actually be the receipt of a sales order. And so we receive a sales order and the production process sees that and now knows, oh, okay, I need to make a wedding cake. And in fact, in our bakery, that may mean that they need, you know, strawberries and vanilla extract and other things like that, which might generate a purchase requisition. So all throughout these processes, we have these inter-process communications that result in as we talked about last time, documents being created and those documents sent to other processes in the system as a way of triggering them to engage in their behavior. Let's look at these on just a high level. We will spend a, a fair amount of time this semester talking about procurement, production, and fulfillment. We will talk a lot about financial accounting. Managerial accounting is very, very complex. We will talk about it a little bit towards the very end of the semester, and you will do some lab exercises with it, but we won't really have time to dig into management accounting to its, its fullest effect. We will talk about inventory and warehouse management. We will spend a lot of time talking about material planning and material management. And in fact, a lot of what you see as core functionality in an ERP system is a company using it to manage materials. When do we need to buy things? Where are things located? Where do we need to ship things? When do we need to make more things? Those kinds of material management issues are really touched by a lot of these different processes here. We will not spend much time at all talking about human capital management or, or personnel issues, human resources. Um, one reason for this, just as an aside, a number of years ago, there was a dominant player in this field, um, PeopleSoft. I'm sure many of you have at least heard of them before. They were regarded as the best HR software product out there. Ironically, a few years ago, Oracle bought them and folded them into their product line, and, and PeopleSoft has not really gotten better as a result of that. The product is, is kind of stagnated. Well, at the time when PeopleSoft was at its heyday, Microsoft realized, excuse me, SAP realized our HR software really, really, really stinks. And so they made an effort to improve their product by going out and buying another company and folding that into their functionality. Now it stinks less, but um, a lot of companies out there that use SAP extensively do not use SAP for human capital management because the functionality is, is really kind of weird. 
Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, like taken a course in human resources or gotten into it. It's really an interesting field, but from a terminology and business process perspective, you've got all of these terms that have very, very particular meanings that, that can be really weird. Like you have job, position, um, I'm trying to think of what the other terms are, job, position, person, employee, and you have terms that you and I would think like job and position are synonymous, and they're not. They're very, very different things. And you would think that person and employee are the same, and they're not. There's just a lot of weird terminology in human resources, so, so we don't cover it in the context of, of this class. Let's dig into, on a very surface level here quickly, some of the key processes we are going to talk about to give us a high level overview. <laughs> We will spend a lot of time this semester in one of your first uh, lab sequences once we get financial accounting in place is to engage in the procurement process. Procurement process, the definition I put here is acquiring materials needed from external sources. And right away we see one of the key elements of decision that we face in the procurement process is they're actually two different alternatives here. We have internal sourcing and external sourcing of materials. And for a lot of companies, one of the key questions they have is, is make versus buy. And the ironic thing is sometimes there are products that our company has the capability to make, but due to various market forces, it's actually cheaper for us to buy it. And so one of the things that we have to factor into our execution of the procurement process is continually looking at what is the best way for us to fulfill a need that we have. And it may be what we would typically think of as procurement, which is going out and contracting with another company for the purchase, but procurement may actually be handled through other mechanisms such as, as uh, making it our, ourselves. The process itself is illustrated here in the uh, steps shown in the picture at the bottom of the slide. Uh, document we talked about a moment ago, the creation of the purchase requisition serves as the, the trigger for the process. And so once a purchase requisition is created, that then results in the creation and sending of a purchase order, which will ultimately result in our receiving materials which will later result in our receiving an invoice and then ultimately result in our sending payment. Now, this is the process on its most elemental level and quite obviously leaves out a lot of really important things. Thinking about this logically, what are some of the things that as you look at this process are things that we quite obviously have to do that aren't listed here as one of the steps. You see anything like that? There's at least one that's like really obvious, I think. Okay, there might be a, a need here to check the inventory. In this picture though, you notice it's the warehouse that they have actually uh, originating the process. So the idea here is the warehouse checked 
and they they know we're out of it. So so that's kind of implied there before the trigger. But uh, what what's something we have to do that's missing here? Just what's that? Yeah, there's a whole lot that has to happen right here where I'm drawing this oval. We have to figure out who sells what it is that we need. We have to figure out what options they have. We have to figure out what price is. We have to find out whether they can fulfill our order given our time constraints. And so once we have all of that information in hand and we select the vendor, then we can create and send the purchase order. But the fact is, in the white space between these two cells right here, there's an awful lot of work. That, that has to be done. And so that's why, while this, this diagram here that illustrates the procurement process using five squares is a perfectly fine and valid diagram, it masks a lot of the real world complexity here. Let me give you another example that we will see later in this semester to the point that we actually have an account in our general ledger specifically related to the issue that I'm about to describe here. Let's walk through this process. We create a purchase requisition, we create and send a purchase order, and according to this diagram, reading from left to right, we receive the materials, then we receive the invoice, and then we send payment. Would you agree with me that we could create and send the purchase order and then in fact receive the materials and then in fact receive the invoice and that's one way that this could happen or what might happen is we create and send the purchase order then we get the invoice then the materials show up and then we proceed to sending the payment so here's the question when do I pay What do you think? When, when do I pay? Depends on the company I'm buying from. Depends on the terms. Anything else it might depend on? Might depend on when I have the money. There are a variety of factors here. But ultimately, this turns into a, a point of configuration. And it also becomes a major decision point for an organization. Some companies, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, some companies make their policy that if they receive an invoice from an authorized vendor related to an order that they have placed, they pay the invoice. Okay? Now, think about what I just said. What was missing from what I just said? Getting the materials. Because that's not a factor in that company's decision. They say, we place an order, we get an invoice, the invoice is what we expected, it's from a vendor we have an ongoing relationship with, we pay the invoice. And they do not, at the time they pay the invoice, care about whether the materials have come in yet. They're assuming the materials will come in. And in fact, you can think about this from your personal experience. Sometimes there are things you're expected to pay for in advance. And so some companies pay their bills based on invoice receipt. Other companies say, 
we're not doing that. It is important to us that we not only have the bill, but we also have the materials. And so now they have an issue, which you might think isn't that big a deal, but in the scope of our accounting record keeping can actually be real challenging to achieve, which is, okay, we get an invoice in, how do we know when to pay it? And you say, well, we, we find out whether we receive the materials. All right, what does that mean? You like pick up the phone and call the warehouse and say, hey, Bob, did you get 10,000 whatever's in from this company last week? That's, that's hardly an effective way to manage this process. So we need in a way in our accounting records to memorialize, okay, we got in materials. And then we need another way in our accounting records to, mater to memorialize, okay, we got in our invoice. And then when our accounting records tell us that both of those things have happened, then we go and we send payment. And in fact, there's an account in your general ledger we will talk about later this semester called the GR slash IR account. That stands for Goods Receipt Invoice Receipt Account. And we debit that account when we get one of those things. And we credit that account when we get another of those things. And when the account balance is zero, that's our trigger to pay. And we don't pay until that account balance, until that account is in balance. And so we have to figure out as a company how we want to do this. Now you might say, why in the world would a company make it their policy to pay an invoice without regard to the actual materials? And this will happen sometimes when a company has an ongoing relationship with a vendor and there is a lot of business going back and forth on a regular basis. So there's a degree of trust here. And so we make it our habit of periodically auditing this and making sure all of our billing is in line. But just to streamline things, as we get invoices in, we look at the terms of payment and we pay those things without regard to whether or not we have actually received the merchandise. In particular, companies will do this when they have ordered 10 of something. I'll use the, the mythical widgets. We ordered 10 widgets from our supplier. They only have nine in stock. So they send us nine widgets and say, we're going to back order one of them and deliver it to you next Friday. But they send us an invoice for 10 widgets. What do we do? We pay for 10 widgets. Why? Because it would be more expensive and time consuming for us to pay for nine widgets and then a week later pay for one widget than it would just be to handle it in one fell swoop and pay for 10 widgets at a time. But those are the kinds of things that we have to decide on a company basis as to how we're going to actually execute these processes. That gets to the heart of what we do in configuration. This is why an IT professional can't sit down and say, okay, click, 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 click. There are procurement processes configured. You've got to talk to people throughout the organization and discuss how you want to handle certain things and then configure the system to conform to, to those decisions. Questions about any of this? Yes, sir. So is this just for like one instance? But what if you have, or what if you have multiple vendors, but each one has a different 
process? Like you end up you take one vendor first and then another vendor you like to wait for. Can that be done on a per Absolutely. And we'll talk about the mechanism for that. And that's where this, you know, once again, that's where this gets really complicated because we may classify different vendors in different ways. And so what we have to actually track in our information system is in some way we need to keep track of our relationship with a given vendor. And so we might have, this is the way we normally do things but here's how we do things with this vendor and here's how we do things with this vendor and we have the ability we need to have the ability to have exceptions you know there are some companies and we'll talk more about this later where they might deliver to us once a week or multiple times a week but they just invoice us once a month and we pay them once a month and so, you know, if that's acceptable to both parties, that kind of collective invoicing is something that, that we can accept. In other cases, we want every delivery to correspond to a single invoice. And so those are the kinds of things that we have to account for in configuration. All right, so let's kind of um, production, making things. Uh, the production process is focused on um, when we have needs in our organization, but instead of buying them from a supplier, we're going to get the things that we need from internal sourcing. Your ERP SIM company needed blueberry muesli, and so you did not buy blueberry muesli, you elected to make blueberry muesli. By the way, the um, developers of ERP SIM every now and again kick around different enhancements to the game. And uh, I and various other people uh, talk to them about different ideas. And one of the ideas that they had that still has not made it into the game is a company's ability to actually, in addition to make Muesli, to buy it from another company. Now, not one of your competitors, but from another supplier. Such that if you're like, oh, we're out of blueberry muesli, um, instead of making blueberry muesli, let's buy it from a supplier. In the real world, companies do that kind of thing. And so if you think about how that would change ERP SIM, there would be products that you could market that you didn't actually make, you just bought from a supplier and uh, slapped your, your packaging on. But the idea behind the production process is as we are going to do this ourselves. The trigger, the request for production is a uh, planned order that later gets followed on with authorizing of production being a production order. We issue the raw materials, we create the product, and we receive the finished goods. Now, once again, this is kind of an oversimplification of the process because there are things that might actually happen here, such as um, one of the very, very miraculous things about ERP SIM was if you said, we want 25,000 boxes of blueberry muesli, you got exactly 25,000 boxes all the time. There was never any waste. There was never any spoilage. A machine never malfunctioned and shorted you by 50 boxes. In the real world, there are all kinds of intervening facts that, that could actually happen here. Uh, a process that is closely akin to the production process is, is the quality assurance process 
where after production finishes with it, we check the item and maybe we discover that 50 boxes um, were not properly glued shut. And as a result, we're, we're going to need to throw those away. Well, what does that do for our cost picture? And so how does that influence the overall cost of production when we have items that have to be rejected or otherwise are, are not deemed acceptable? And so we will talk more uh, about the production processes as we go along here. Fulfillment. Selling products to customers. You can see the steps in the process here. We get a purchase order from a customer. We put that into our system in terms of it being a sales order. We prepare the shipment. We send the shipment. We create and send the invoice. And then ultimately, we receive payment. There's an important element in the sales process that you never had to worry about with ERP SIM, but that we will spend a good bit of time talking about here um, in a couple of class periods. And that is the, the granting of credit. Just because a customer sends us a purchase order does not mean that we are able to fulfill that purchase order. Maybe, for example, we've never dealt with this customer before, and they have just sent us a purchase order indicating that they want to buy $100,000 worth of stuff from us. Well, wh what happens in that situation? Do, do we sell to them? Um, in the Johnson City area, just in the last few months, there are several restaurants that have gone out of business. Restaurants do that with greater frequency than other types of business. Well, what happens if you were selling to that restaurant and just dropped off $25,000 worth of food on Monday and they close on Tuesday and basically declare bankruptcy? Well, you're not getting paid for that. And so companies really want to make sure that before they sell to a customer on credit, that the customer is in fact credit worthy. Beyond assessing a customer's credit worthiness, what other things might we want to factor into this before we actually take this purchase order and accept it and turn it into a sales order in our system? Absolutely. We get a purchase order for a particular product to be shipped on a certain date in a certain quantity. We have to ask ourselves, can, can we make that? Can we meet that? Because as, as you may already know, if we, if we accept that purchase order, that then becomes a contract and we have to fulfill that. And so if we say to a customer, yeah, we'll take that purchase order, but we can't fulfill it, we've potentially gotten ourselves into some legal problems. What else? So we have granting credit. We have uh, can we fulfill? What might be some other questions? Um, maybe what are to give them a discount buying in bulk? Okay. Um, is there any kind of discount that they are entitled to? Or just in general, looking at the price. You know, maybe for example, we quoted the customer $25 a unit but they sent us a sizable order and the purchase order is for $24.75 a unit. Well, that wasn't the price we quoted them, but the order is big enough that, yeah, we'll go ahead and accept that and we'll go ahead and accept that 
the terms of sale that the customer has proposed. So we've got to look at the overall pricing picture there and make sure that it makes sense for us in terms of fulfillment. This is a good list. What, what else can you think of? That, what's that? Things like who's going to pay for various things, including shipment. And this is where you get into your terms of sale, your, your FOB shipping point, your FOB destination, and all of those kinds of things come into play here. Good. What else? There is also the issue of authorization. Is this customer someone that I can, in fact, sell this to? Now, maybe the authorization issue is, have I granted that customer authorization? Have you ever um, gone into a jewelry store or a retailer of various types and seen a sign-up, for example, that might say, exclusive retailer of, and they list a particular product or name brand? And that store has a contract with their supplier that in a given geographic region, that store is the only retailer authorized to sell that product. Well, that means that if another jewelry store sent that particular company a purchase order for that particular item, that company should say, no, you are not authorized to buy this because you are not our vendor that we have designated for the Johnson City area. Sometimes those authorizations come to us from, from third parties. For example, um, depending upon what it is that we are selling, the government might require us to check with them to make sure that that customer is authorized to purchase that item. And in particular, we get into situations like this if, if we are shipping internationally. You know, it's amazing that because of things like encryption that are built into certain computer hardware and computer software, um, the companies, or excuse me, the countries that companies cannot ship orders to based on U.S. law. And so we have to be very careful about accepting a purchase order if, in fact, doing so would have us violate the law. So once again, the point of this is these are the basic steps in the process. But as we really dig into this for a particular customer, we might find out there's a whole lot of other things that we have to set up in our system. Because what we don't want to have happen is we don't want to get a purchase order in on Monday and have it take us two weeks to decide whether or not we can accept it. You know, we want to decide very, very, very quickly because we might need to get started on the process of making the items and preparing them for shipment and so on. So a lot of this has to be driven by things that we have configured in our system to automatically check these things and do the validity check as a part of that. Some of the other processes that, that you will see uh, referenced in, in your textbook, material planning is matching of supply of materials with demand. All of you experienced this in ERP SIM, and I think that most students would testify as to this being the hardest part of the game, is figuring out how much to make of what product to make sure that you never run out, but also to make sure that you don't have a buildup of certain products. 
Well, if you thought that was hard in the context of ERP SIM, where you had six products and you had virtual customers that weren't coming to you with real world demands and real world insistences, it is infinitely harder in a real world environment for companies to do this very effectively. So a significant process for most companies is the strategic element of material planning. Trying to match what we can supply with the demand and then the other side of that is trying to match what we are going to demand with sources of supply and um, using that as I referenced a few moments ago as a potential source of, of strategic advantage. Life cycle data management is a major process. We, we won't really talk about this very much, but this is managing product design, product variations over time, alternate components, improvement, retirement, and, and so on. Let's stick with our ERP SIM example because my assumption is that it is something that all of you are familiar with. So I'm going to use my extreme artistic ability to draw a, a box of muesli. Okay? So this is a box of muesli that, that your ERP SIM company made. And in the past, um, your ERP SIM company had a manufacturing facility here in, in good old Johnson City, Tennessee. Well, your company, because you're, you're profitable and you're a growing company and you want to take advantage of, of different opportunities, you decide to open another manufacturing facility. And since you sell all across the United States, it makes sense to put your other manufacturing facility on the West Coast somewhere so that you don't have to keep shipping products from Johnson City all the way to California. So you decide you're going to open another manufacturing facility in San Diego. Okay? This is your blueberry muesli, okay? And you have decided as a company that your blueberry muesli has a particular formulation. It was very, very basic in our ERP SIM example. You can imagine that a real world blueberry muesli product would have more ingredients in it and would have preservatives and other things like that. But in addition to that, if you really stop and think about it, this is what I'm representing here in this circle, this is the way we make the muesli here in Johnson City. And it's based on the fact that we have certain manufacturing equipment and here in the East Tennessee area, we have access to certain raw materials. Well, we built our facility back in 1970 and it's still going strong, it still serves us well. But this new facility we're building in San Diego, we're building this year, brand new, 2015. Let me ask you this, what is the likelihood that the equipment in that San Diego facility is going to be identical to what we have in our Johnson City facility? None, I mean, there's, there's a 40 year span of time. And so even though the equipment in Johnson City works fine, we're gonna put newer equipment in San Diego. So with that being the case, it's pretty obvious to understand that the actual process of making the cereal might be very different in San Diego than it is in Johnson City. And in fact, although our consumers might not be able to distinguish this, the stuff that we put into the muesli, the actual ingredients might be slightly different. 
For example, maybe the blueberries that we can source here in Johnson City are inherently sweeter than what's available on the West Coast. So on the West Coast, we include more, and we're not making healthy blueberry muesli, we include a little bit more sugar in the formulation so that it tastes the same. And we want it to taste the same in both locations, but because the raw materials are slightly different, we actually have to adjust our formulation. So the fact is, even though it's the same product, from plant to plant, the formulation might be different, the equipment might be different. When you get right down to it, the only thing that might be the same is the actual product itself in the eyes of consumers. Well, how do we keep track of that? That's life cycle data management. That's where we say, okay, in Tennessee, we use this material. But in San Diego, we use this other material. And especially for international companies, a lot of times it comes down to, in certain parts of the world, this particular material is a lot more expensive. So we use a cheaper material. A great example of that that I'm sure many of you are familiar with is Coca-Cola and what they do for sweetener in different parts of the world. Um, here in the United States, Coca-Cola is sweetened with, I think it's high fructose corn syrup. It's sugar. Yeah, they're actually using sugar in Mexico. Yes, sir. Uh, on the same thing, I read an interesting story just a couple days ago in World War II, and they didn't, didn't have the resources. Mm -hmm. so. so this in the real world gets a lot more complicated than consumers even tend to think about. I don't know if you're, and I'm not really into cars, but it's my understanding that a lot of times um, a particular model car whether it's made in one plant versus being made in another plant might have slightly different components because of what's available and the manufacturing equipment used and so on. So the way companies manage those logistics is a part of what's called life cycle data management. Because on some level, this is blueberry muesli, but when we talk about it in terms of the San Diego plant, we have to realize that we're actually talking about a distinct product than what we're talking about in the Johnson City plant. And there was somebody who had a hand up. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. When you know, like, And that's how we, this is how we account for it in our enterprise information system. Well, we will talk about inventory and warehouse management. Not glamorous, you know, not exciting, but critical for most organizations. We've got to make products or get products in from vendors. And then once we have them, we've got to put them someplace. We've got to store them. We've got to uh, move materials internally in our organization. One of the key things that's an element of complexity that Walmart faces is Walmart has stores all over the United States. So when Walmart goes to a vendor and says, um, I think it's Mattel makes Barbie dolls. We think that this particular Barbie doll is going to be really popular next Christmas. We want five million Barbie dolls. They don't place one order and say, bring five million Barbie dolls to our company headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas. 
you know, their order something like we want 5 million Barbies and here's the 150 distribution centers and the quantities that we want you to send to each of those. And that gets into the real complexity of we've got to have the right products in the right place at the right time for us to be able to work with them. So although this is very mechanical, but the requesting of materials, locating the materials, issuing the materials, I many, many years ago worked um, for a university in their food services department and they had a, a fairly good sized warehouse given the size of the university and occasionally things would get misplaced in their inventory system and they would be there in the warehouse but somehow they had fallen off of the inventory report which meant that even though you could see it it didn't exist and I can recall one time um, finding a pallet of ketchup that as best we could determine was at least eight years old at the point that we found it. Well, you might not think about this, but first of all, ketchup is highly acidic. And the reason why it came to my attention was when I walked through the plant and saw this pallet up there that was oozing green slime, basically, you know, kind of running down the, the rack and everything. And I was like, what in the world is that? And so they pulled it down and they opened a case. And first of all, a lot of the cans had basically the ketchup had eaten through the metal can. And um, one of the guys, against my advice, decided he wanted to open one of the cans to see what it was like. And it was, I can't even begin to describe the smell. Um, the other thing was that we discovered when they started taking the cases and throwing them into the dumpster, they would explode which was kind of an interesting effect. Um, but nonetheless, the point of that was, we spent a lot of money at some point on time on a pallet of ketchup that basically we never used. Well, inventory management is all about getting your material in, rotating your stock, making sure that uh, you're managing it in a way that after you purchase something that it maintains its optimal condition until such a time as you can sell it to a customer or, or use it in your, your production. We will talk briefly about uh, asset management and customer service. This is perhaps not what you think of when I'm talking about customer service here. This is not like calling a 1-800 number and asking them, how do I fix my toaster? Um, this is more the idea of we have equipment and we have a contract with another company or we are the service provider and we have to go on site and maintain that equipment. And so you can see the process here. We get a request for maintenance. We authorize maintenance. Somebody goes out and performs the maintenance. And then there has to be an accounting settlement for that. Now, maybe the customer pays us a flat amount every month. But still, when we actually do maintenance from an accounting point of view, we, we have to track the costs associated with this. And so we will talk very briefly later in the semester about asset management and customer service. I made reference to these when we went through our diagram. Human capital management, which is primarily dealing with the people in our organization. Financial accounting, which is the record keeping that we do for the sake of typically governmentally required external reporting. Uh, managerial or cost accounting, what we do for uh, internal reporting. Project management, 
is another important process that is enabled in enterprise information systems. It kind of stands on its own in functionality, but it's a facet of the system that just allows us to plan a project. And the idea here is we plan a project, we come up with a budget for the project, we execute the project, and then ultimately we, we settle this. And a lot of times this project management is used for very large-scale projects. And in fact, some manufacturing um, works more based on principles of project management than it does traditional manufacturing. Good example of this would be in ERP SIM, your company made thousands of boxes of muesli every day. If we were to go to the Boeing company, we would discover that just to make one jet takes them months. And so, you know, at any given point in time, they may only be working on four planes. And to make those four planes might take them more than a year. So there's a lot that goes into that where there's a lot of planning, budgeting, execution. If you're making planes and you expect it to take you a year, that doesn't mean that on January 1st you have to have in all of the things that are going to go into that plane. You know, you come up with a schedule and you know what you need and when, and you do your ordering and your budgeting and your planning accordingly. It's a very, very different kind of manufacturing, but it is something that, um, that we see in organizations. Just to close things out, this diagram is one that SAP uses in a lot of different things. I'm not really concerned with us digging into the diagram, but what this is, it, what we're looking at here is what's typically called a process map. And what this does is it, it just on a very high level describes what processes a particular piece of software will support. And this is the process map for SAP ERP. So what this is saying is, okay, if you buy this package, then in terms of financials, you're going to get supply chain management, financial accounting, management accounting, and corporate governance. That's what this product supports as far as processes go out of the box. In the area of human capital management, we support talent management, workforce process management, and, and workforce deployment. This discussion we had today I think was important for us to have, but I'm glad we're done with it. It's like one of my least important discussions for us to have. I think this parallels um, one of the chapters in your book, I don't recall if it's chapter one, I think it's probably chapter two. Next time we get together, we are going to start into the next discussion, which will be our first major discussion of the semester. Make sure you download the, the new slide deck that we will jump into next time. There are a couple of slides at the end of this one that we may still talk about on Thursday, but I'm very uh, much looking forward to jumping into our next topic.